Got the big man. Crabtree pulls free. And touchdown. Red Raiders with a second to go. Fourth and five. The national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going into the end zone. The Bears have won. The Bears have won. No, returned by Chris Davis. Davis goes left. Davis gets a block. Davis has another block. Chris Davis. No flags. Welcome to the Mike Linebacker. Hello and welcome to the Mike Linebacker podcast. Uh, I'm your one of your hosts, Tristan Pocock, uh, and I'm welcomed today by Alex Medley and Josh Burris. Alex, way over in Finley, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm great, Tristan. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. And Josh, you're way over in Indiana, in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> Uh, pretty close. Uh, Fort Wayne's about 40 minutes away, but yeah, excited to be here, guys. First episode. Yes, so this is the first episode of the Mike Linebacker podcast, um, and this is a podcast about college football for college football fans. Uh, we're going to be talking about the current, the past, the future, everything college football related. Um, and today we're doing a little bit of a look back on a on an interesting game. Nonetheless, we figured you know, we'll start this podcast off talking about maybe some of the uh, the greatest games of all time. Uh, this is maybe a little bit more of an obscure one, but we're going to be talking about the 2005 Capital One Bowl between Iowa and LSU. So uh, that's kind of what we're going to discuss today is just uh, kind of the build up to the game, the game itself, and uh, a little bit of thoughts about after the game. Hopefully you guys enjoy this. Uh, we're just going to kind of talk through the game, have a little bit of fun, talk about some of the plays, maybe listen to some audio clips here and there, and uh We'll see what happens. So uh, now I'm going to throw it over to Josh now, and uh, he's going to talk about some of the uh, lead up to the game, the build up. Thank you, Tristan. So yeah, let's get off with uh, just a summary of the game. Both teams coming in, you could say were pretty evenly matched. Uh, number 11 Iowa versus number 12 LSU. Uh, both teams had a 9-2 record coming in, and Iowa was able to pull away with a 30 to 25 victory. Uh, Drew Tate had the game-winning touchdown pass to Warren Holloway, 56 yards, a game that went down to the wire. Tate had 287 yards in this game, two touchdowns, two picks. And also with the loss, LSU became the first defending BCS national champion to lose a non-BCS bowl the following year. Kind of a weird stat to keep track of, but uh, they keep track of that, guys. So uh, let's look over uh, both of these teams, how their seasons went. Uh, beginning with LSU. As I said, they were the defending BCS national champ, winning at the previous season. Uh, they came into this season ranked number four starting off, but obviously they didn't stay that way. Uh, they struggled against uh, a couple ranked opponents. They had a 10-9 loss to number 14 Auburn. Uh, they had a 45-16 loss to number three Georgia. They did have a decent win over Florida though, 24-21. Also, Nick Saban's the head coach here. He actually announced not too long before this game, guys, that he was going to become the Miami Dolphins' next head coach. This was going to be his last game coaching. Uh, he had a two-quarterback offense this season uh, with redshirt freshman Jamarcus Russell and senior Marcus Randall. Um, and then they had a rushing attack with two running backs, Ali Broussard and Joseph Adai. Uh, this team also had two consensus All-Americans between Marcus Spears and center Ben Wilkerson. 
Uh, Spears had a career year with 49 tackles, 17 of those were for loss, 9 sacks, and 21 quarterback pressures. And then just like any other LSU team, you know, we expect to see a lot of uh, top talent, uh, both at the college level and eventually in the NFL, and this team is no exception. Uh, they had guys like Andrew Whitworth, as I mentioned, a die. Uh, Jamarcus Russell was a number one overall pick. They also had Dwayne Bowe at wide receiver, a couple stud defensive backs, and Corey Webster and LaRon Landry as well. And uh, just like any other Nick Saban team, this was a loaded coaching staff. Uh, Alex, what do you... Who are some of the bigger names that you're seeing on this coaching staff? I mean, obviously, uh, Nick Saban has quite the track record as a as the head coach himself, but he was joined by Jimbo Fisher as the offensive coordinator, and Will Muschamp was the defensive coordinator. So, I mean, looking back on it, they really had a loaded, loaded squad there. No doubt. And then also uh, his defensive backs coach was Kirby Smart, who's now the head coach at Georgia and was an assistant with him at Alabama, and then Derek Dooley, who was a head coach for a little bit, uh, was the running backs and special teams coach. Uh, so that's kind of a summary of LSU. Uh, let's look, turn over to Iowa. So Iowa didn't have nearly as high of expectations as LSU. Uh, they were the preseason number 19 team after finishing 10 and 3 the year prior. Um, they had a couple. They had a slow start to the season. They had back-to-back losses. One was a 44 to 7 blowout loss to unranked Arizona State. And then they had a 30-17 to loss to number 18, Michigan. Now, that game was important because both of these teams tied in the regular season, but since Michigan won that game, they ended up taking the uh, right to the Big Ten title. So if Iowa wins that game, they're Big Ten champs, but unfortunately they lost this game, so Michigan becomes them. Uh, but then they kind of picked it up after there. Uh, Tristan, who did, tell me about that Penn State game. It wasn't anything super impressive, but you don't see scores like that too often. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, right? They they come into the game uh, after beating Ohio State, uh, you know, thirty three to seven, which was you know somewhat of a, a, a an upset, if you will, uh, or a good game nonetheless against a decent Ohio State team. And then they come in and play this Penn State team that's probably not at you know the level that Penn State should be, but a six to four final score. I mean, come on, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Six to four. How do you even get there? Two safeties? Come on, Penn State. Come on. Yeah, you're, you're lucky to see one safety in a game, but uh, there were two in this game. So, yeah, that's definitely a wild game. Uh, and then, yeah, Iowa, you mentioned they, they beat Ohio State, and then they also had a decent win over number nine, Wisconsin, too. So, I mean, they had, they had some decent wins on their resume uh, coming into this game. And then, as I mentioned, they were co-Big Ten champs, uh, but Michigan got it outright since they won that game. Uh, looking through Iowa's roster, uh, it doesn't look like there was nearly as much talent as the LSU roster uh, in terms of NFL talent at least I noticed Chad Greenway was on this team he made it to a couple Pro Bowls uh, and then at the college level there were a couple uh, Big Ten all-conference selections uh, Drew Tate was one of them uh, on the defensive line you had Matt Roth and Jonathan Babineau I mean there was also another one uh, Kirk Ferentz was the head coach but there was another Ferentz on this roster Alex yeah yeah Brian Ferentz was the uh, uh, obviously Kirk Ferentz's son he was an offensive lineman at this time for Iowa, and now he is the offensive line coach and, I believe, offensive coordinator for Iowa. So if I can jump in real quick, I, I do have an interesting little tidbit, maybe a little trivia question for you guys. Nick Saban and Kirk Ferentz were on the same coaching staff when? Ooh, that's a tough one. Let's see. This was definitely in the 90s, I'm guessing, because Ferentz was hired. Yeah, pre, pre-99 when Ferentz came to Iowa. Let's see. Was it, can you tell us if it was an NFL or college roster? It was NFL. And 
the head coach is significant too. Uh, was this the Cleveland Browns when Bill Belichick was the head coach? This would be the 1993-1994 Cleveland Browns football staff. Saban and Ferentz were both on Bill Belichick's staff there. So interesting little tidbit. Good job, Josh. Well, I knew that I knew that Saban was with the Browns for a little bit, and then when he mentioned the head coach was significant, I was like, oh, it's got to be the Browns then. I'd be surprised if it was anybody else. Uh, anyway, though, that's kind of a summary of Iowa's season. Uh, now I can get into a statistical breakdown for you guys. So... Looking at the running games here, uh, that was definitely not Iowa's specialty. Uh, the season before, they had finished 39th. They had uh, running back Fred Russell finished with over 1,300 rushing yards, but they were really missing him in this season, guys, as they finished the year ranked 119th out of 120 teams when it came to running the ball. They were averaging 72.6 yards per game on the ground. Uh, and I think at one point in the game, one of the uh, commentators said, and that's the reason why Iowa doesn't run the ball too much after like a one or two yard carry. I mean, that when you're ranking 119 out of 120, that's, a, that's definitely an issue. And what an odd world that we live in, in in 2004, 2005, where Iowa is a passing team. Especially when you consider Drew Tate's overall numbers. If, if you would put those in today's world, they aren't anything spectacular. But back then they made him the Big Ten offensive or Big Ten player of the year overall. Yeah, I mean, Tate, I mean, he was okay at passing. Uh, he finished with about 2,700 yards, you know, it was 2,786 to be exact, which was third in the Big Ten. But, yeah, to consider Iowa a passing team in this era is a, is a little interesting. But when you look at the running game, then you see, oh, yeah, they got to be obviously a passing team. And they were a passing team, uh, averaging about 240 yards a game, which ranked 40th. So much better than that running game. But LSU, on the other hand, uh, running the ball was uh, what they did best. Uh, that two running back attack with Adai and Broussard got them to be ranked 20th in college football, averaging 193.8 yards per game. And then passing is what LSU uh, kind of struggled with. They ranked 75th, averaging 201.8 yards per game. Uh, and they had a two-quarterback offense to do it with uh, between as I mentioned earlier, Marcus Randall and Jamarcus Russell. Randall was probably what you would say is the primary quarterback. He was the starter in this Capital One Bowl, but him and Russell both had nine touchdown passes. And then when it came to scoring, uh, LSU averaged 28.7 points, which ranked 42nd, and Iowa was scoring 24.3, which ranked 71st. But uh, when we get to the defensive side of the ball, guys, that's where we're seeing both of them uh, be a little more even. Both of these teams were strong defensively, and I think, you know, if you look at both teams today, uh, you would agree that LSU and Iowa, some of their brand is defense. So diving into Iowa's defense, they came into this game ranked third in forced turnovers, fifth in rushing defense, 11th in total defense, 17th in scoring defense, and 39th in passing defense. Flipping it over to LSU side, they ranked third in total defense, fifth in passing defense, seventh in rushing defense, 15th in scoring defense, and 51st in forced turnovers. Now, I dove a little bit into the special teams just because there were a couple significant uh, special teams plays in this game, and I just wanted to kind of look to see how both teams did special teams-wise. Uh, one thing I found interesting was when it came to uh, making extra points, Iowa was ranked 99th in extra point percentage and LSU 118th. So, uh, I mean, obviously they weren't below like 90% or anything like that, but it's still kind of funny to look at you know, two good teams like this to struggle to you know, make extra points. One area that Iowa was really good at, though, was field goal percentage. They ranked 14th there, but when it came to making, you know, the 10-yard the extra point, you know, or whatever it is, they just they couldn't get it done for some reason. 
Um, so that's kind of a summary of both teams, guys, uh, background statistics, uh, how their season went. Uh, let me turn it over to you, Tristan, to kind of help us break down this game. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to look at these teams overall and just see, you know, where they stood coming into the game. The game obviously was played January 1st, 2005. Game happened in Orlando, Florida at the Citrus Bowl. There were 70,229 fans in attendance. LSU came into the game favored by seven, and weather was really just a non-factor, at least visually to me. I don't know. Did you guys see anything that made you think that weather would be a factor? Not really. Uh, the sun was out in... As you mentioned, not too much. I don't think there's too much wind, uh, great weather. So I mean, I, it's optimal for everybody. LSU was used to playing weather like that. Iowa, uh, maybe not so much, but I mean, obviously, I think even cold weather teams would rather play where it's warm. Yeah, nothing too spectacular uh, in this one. It wasn't a game in late November in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, or anything like that. So they had a nice sunny day for the game. Oh, and that's why they play bowl games in Southern Florida, right? So if we jump into the game, first quarter, uh, Iowa gets the ball first. Uh, and, and really, uh, right away, a couple plays, a couple running plays, screen pass, nothing too spectacular. But then all of a sudden, Tate to Solomon, uh, they score a long touchdown pass, uh, go up 7 to nothing. Quick release over the middle of midfield, complete 40. This is going to go all the way. Touchdown, Clinton Solomon. Yeah, so uh, I have a couple interesting notes about that play. So the, the route that uh, Sullivan ran was basically just a, a slant, but LSU decided to bring a safety blitz and Corey Webster, who was, uh, as Josh mentioned earlier, a pretty decorated defender, uh, was in man coverage. So he tried to make a play and uh, knock the ball away by jumping in front of the receiver. As soon as Sullivan caught it, he just turned up field and there was nobody, nobody back to really help him out. So if he would have been a little more aware of what he had in terms of safety coverage, he might have uh, just played that one safe and Iowa would have been forced to punt. Yeah, so that's an interesting perspective to just see how that early gamble in the game can, uh, you know, just open the game up with a 7 to nothing score. And uh, really after that, the first quarter was very defensive. Uh, there wasn't much going on, a lot of back and forth, a couple punts, although... I do have to make note quickly of the uh, sequence at the end of the first quarter. This may be one of my favorite sequences that I've ever witnessed in a football game. In order, back-to-back -back consecutive plays, we go Iowa blocks an LSU punt. LSU has a defensive end that intercepts an Iowa screen pass. LSU then proceeds to fumble it, but they got it back, so it's okay. And then Iowa drops the interception on the next play, and then they sack LSU. So just on consecutive plays like that, it, it was amazing. But the defensive end uh, uh, snagging the screen pass with one hand was a was a pretty spectacular play. Oh, screen pass intercepted, and the only man to make a tackle, the quarterback held him up. It'll be brought back to midfield, Melvin Oliver, and the interception. And the tank was rumbling. I was going to say, it just must be an LSU thing, you know, to catch passes one-handed you know Odell Beckham becomes famous in the NFL for doing it and then uh, even the defensive ends are doing it long before him so who knows how many other guys are making one-handed catches at LSU before Odell so after that you have seven to nothing at the end of the first quarter uh are there any thoughts uh Alex that you have on the first quarter yeah it, I mean things just got really sloppy there for a few minutes and uh I mean that's what made this game fun man things just kind of were chaotic for uh quite a bit of the game I think this was a very fitting way to, to kick it off, pretty much. 
Yeah, as I mentioned earlier with uh, the team's defenses, both had really good defenses, and we saw those on display, Those uh, that sequence right there, where it was four or five straight plays of turnover, near turnover, uh, sacks, and stuff like that. So then we jump into the second quarter, uh, and, and it was, again, maybe a little bit of a slower second quarter, uh, and, and that might also carry over a little bit into the third quarter, but Jackson, the field goal kicker for LSU, makes a 29-yard field goal at the start of the quarter then to make it 7-3. to Later in the quarter, a 47-yard field goal for LSU makes it 7-6. to I, I want to say maybe three or four minutes left in the half, uh, L- Iowa blocked a punt, uh, the second one of the game, uh, and this time they ended up returning it for a touchdown to make it 14-6. to uh, And then with one minute left, uh, maybe a, a fairly key play in the game, interestingly enough, LSU's running back Broussard takes it 74 yards for uh, a touchdown on a touchdown run, which uh, is kind of interesting. Flynn in near side. That'll be carried to the lookout to the 40. One man to beat to the 50-yard line. Broussard! Broussard, the five! Touchdown, LSU! Yeah, I don't know if uh, the plan was to score a touchdown there or if they were just trying to run the clock out. You know, usually teams will do that. You know, they'll run the ball something safe uh, to kill that last minute when you're deep in your own territory. You know, you don't want to turn it over and give you know your opponent an easy touchdown opportunity right there but yeah Broussard just found a lane and uh was gone so I mean gotta tip your cap to LSU for that touchdown yeah I don't know if it was uh spur of the moment obviously like you said I doubt that they were planning on scoring a touchdown so then they decided to just uh throw it out there and go for two maybe they didn't have the uh kicking team ready yet I mean it would have it would have made made it a tied game if they had converted the conversion. But what ended up happening is there was an offensive pass interference, which moved it back. And then they lined up to kick a normal PAT and had another false start. So finally they tried to kick a 40 yard (laughs) point after, and they obviously missed it. And so that ends up being our halftime score, right? 14 to 12, you know, kind of like, like we said before, really sloppy first half, a lot of weird kind of mistakes, which, I don't know. Sometimes you just expect to see that in bowl season, you know, coming off the long break. I don't know if there's any thoughts on that. One thing I noticed, uh, as I told you guys earlier, Iowa wasn't a great running team. Uh, They finished this game with 47 rushing yards. Uh, In the first half, they had minus one. Obviously, the second half was a lot better for them running the ball, but that first half, uh, they didn't have anything. It was all Drew Tate that first half. So then we jump into the third quarter, and I don't know, just, just watching this game over the third quarter, man, it just drug on. There was not a lot happening there. Uh, you know, the first quarter had some exciting moments. The second quarter, you have that touchdown run with a minute left. There there's some exciting moments, but, man, the third quarter was something something to be desired in a football game. There was a 19-yard field goal by uh, by Iowa at the 10-minute mark, and that made it 17-12, to 12. and that's the third quarter, <laughs> the whole thing right there. I think one interesting thing that has to be noted about the third quarter, when LSU returned the Iowa kickoff to about the 42, uh, and then there was a face mask uh, tacked on to the end of that, uh, they took over at the Iowa 27-yard line. They went three and out, so on fourth down, they decided to attempt a fake field goal. The play they drew up was a doozy. They had Matt Flynn run it straight up the middle, and shockingly he got stopped short of the first down marker so they turned it over on downs on that note with Matt Flynn too it was in the third quarter that LSU just kind of got tired of Randall uh, not getting much done offensively and so instead of bringing in Jamarcus Russell your other quarterback and your two quarterback offense they bring in Matt Flynn who attempted I think 10 passes all season long and uh, that that failed 
fake field goal was the end of his first drive. He was pretty uneventful in this game. He came on, I think, the next drive too. And at that point, I'm like, okay, what are you doing, Nick Saban? You don't have faith in any of your normal starting quarterbacks. You're bringing in Flynn, who's, I mean, he won a national championship later in his career. But as you can see from this game, uh, he wasn't anything special at this point in his career. So then we jump into the fourth quarter, and to me, this is where this game just just blossoms into a full-on nutcase of a game. I don't even know what to say. It was amazing. So with uh, with 12:48 left uh, in the in the game, Iowa gets a, a touchdown, a four-yard run by Simmons off the left-hand side to make it 24 to 12. So at that point, you're you know you're thinking, okay, two-possession game, a little over 12 minutes left. Uh, Iowa just really needs to try to possess the ball at this point. Uh, you know, right after that touchdown, Nick Saban finally pulls the trigger, brings Jamarcus Russell into the game for good. Uh, and, and that's kind of where uh, LSU's offensive turnaround started, right? So he leads them on a, on a pretty good uh, drive. He throws a 22-yard touchdown pass to Green with 9.21 left to make the score 24-19. to And then... We have the drive that goes down at the end of the game. Any any thoughts on this drive leading up to the touchdown? There's a couple of key plays in there, right? There were for sure. Uh, one of them that I noticed that LSU had to convert a fourth and one. Uh, that was to get across Iowa's 40. So, I mean, they don't even have a chance at this one if they don't make that play. So that's one of them right there. So then coming out of the, the fourth and one conversion and a couple other weird plays that happen in there, uh, you know, Jamarcus Russell ends up throwing a three-yard touchdown pass to Green with about a minute left in the game. Uh, and that ended up making the score 25-24. to 24. A second down, goal to go from the three-yard line. Again, Russell looking into the end zone. Green, touchdown! Any thoughts on that last play? That little, uh, looked like a slant pass or something like that. Uh, not too many thoughts on the play itself, but yeah, they did leave a decent amount of time on the clock for Iowa. Uh, obviously, you know, you want to make sure you get that touchdown. That way you're in the lead and you don't want to risk not having the lead and losing the game. But at the same time, I think maybe you run a running play or two, you know, just to kill some clock or maybe force Iowa to use some timeouts if they had any at that point, you know, just, just put yourself in the best position. Jamarcus Russell really came in and, uh, was a gunslinger in there for LSU. Obviously, they were running a, a little bit of a different offense than what they normally do. Um, as you mentioned earlier, they're normally a, a running offense, and Jamarcus came in and really was just slinging the ball all over the field. So it was a little bit of a change of pace, so it's hard to tell what would have happened if Randall was left in for that drive. So to Josh's point, LSU ends up scoring the touchdown, going up 25-24, uh, a little over a minute to go in the game, and they have to kick it back to Iowa. And, and then Iowa kind of has a couple plays here and there, uh, and then there was a pass across the middle where the receiver came down short of the line to gain, uh, and that kind of set the stage for the final play. Down at 16, looking Tate wants to go deep for the touchdown. A man open at the 20, it is caught! So yeah, you have Tate to Holloway, a long touchdown pass as time expires. And, and it, it, you know, watching the play, it, it almost seems inexplicable, right? I mean, just, it doesn't, it's not a Hail Mary. It's just kind of like a, a streak pass. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it looked like everybody was going vertical, right? And you look at the play and LSU's defensive backs are covering everybody except Holloway. He ends up being the one lone open receiver, ends up catching the pass. But even before that play, I just wanted to point out the false start that they had. So, as you mentioned with Tristan, they get a play across the middle, and they don't quite reach the first down mark. So Tate runs up to spike the ball with 14 seconds left. But 
uh, they didn't get set and there was a false start. So that ran the clock down to, I believe it was seven seconds and set them back five yards. So they didn't really have time to draw up another play. Uh, they had to make this happen right now because the clock was running. So did you guys, I don't know if you guys remember the Ohio State-Wisconsin game uh, this year, not the uh, Big Ten Championship game, but the regular season game. I thought that the game-winning touchdown pass here looked very similar to the uh, Jack Cone miracle lofted up pass in that first game for, I believe, Wisconsin's only touchdown to the right uh, side of the end zone. I I couldn't help but see the similarities between the two plays. It looked kind of completely unplanned, and it just... The ball found the receiver perfectly right between a couple defenders. Uh, It it is kind of interesting if you really kind of sit back and watch a couple angles from that last play. Uh, There's a really good angle from the back of the end zone that kind of shows LSU's defense uh, getting set up. The LSU linebacker, maybe it's their nickelback or whatever that was in the game, he was kind of communicating pre-snap with some of the the defensive linemen and and potentially looked like he was going to try to blitz. There's a lot of people who believe that Tate recognized this. Iowa had a timeout uh, before that play, so they they were fully capable of stopping the clock and drawing something up. Uh, but you know, Tate kind of rushed him up to the line to get the playoff, and and really that linebacker, nickelback, whatever, he was the guy that was out of position to not guard Holloway on that touchdown pass. He was kind of playing no man's land underneath. If you look at the replay, his guy kind of runs right by him, and he's just kind of stuck almost playing a zone out in the flats. And uh, it it ended up being a freshman safety, I believe, that came in to take that nickelback spot. And uh, I think uh, I think Drew Tate kind of got got the best of uh, Nick Saban and his and his staff there on that play. Well, that's a heck of a statement there, isn't it, Tristan? Drew Tate got the best of Nick Saban. I don't know if those words have ever been uttered before. How many times do we see people get the best of Nick Saban, though, honestly? It's not too often. He's he's a heck of a coach. Uh, yeah, so Iowa ends up pulling out the victory with one of the most random plays you'll ever see. Like Alex said, just kind of chuck it up and hope for the best, but not quite a Hail Mary. Alex, uh, what, what are kind of your post-game thoughts on the on how this turned out? Um, overall, I thought it was a, a fairly sloppy game. Uh, there were quite a few penalties and probably just as many turnovers. A fantastic ending, uh, who would have thought? Iowa, for the most part of the game, I thought looked like the better team. Josh mentioned that that didn't really uh, seem to be reflected in the stats, um, which I would agree with. Uh, and also, I I just think it's funny how LSU really seemed to not have a clue who they wanted to run at quarterback uh, most of the game. Uh, Russell was probably the more talented player, naturally less experienced. Randall, was he a senior this game? This was his senior year. Yeah, I, I see why they went with him, but I feel like if Russell had played, the final score would have looked a lot different. If we if we kind of look at the aftermath of the next couple seasons, you don't really see this game having a huge impact on either program. Sometimes you'll you'll see things really change depending on uh, a team losing a bowl game if it's kind of important, like how this was a you know final drive thing for Iowa. Um, but for them, this was actually their best season uh, for quite a while. The following season, they went 7-5, and five, and uh, they had losses to Iowa State, Ohio State, Michigan, and Northwestern. And then they lost to Florida in the Outback Bowl. And the next couple seasons, they went 6-7, and seven, and then they went 6-6. Six and six. In 06, they lost to Texas in the Alamo Bowl, and they didn't even make a bowl game in 2007. So... If anything, you would have thought this game would have helped Iowa out, but they didn't really make anything of it. They just kind of fell off there for a couple of years after and 
in typical Iowa fashion, they had a good year and then they went back to being fairly average. LSU, on the other hand, they lost this game and Nick Saban left. So you certainly would have thought that they'd be on the uh, on the downturn for the next couple of years. Instead, we ended up having a an 05-11-2 season, uh, and they beat Miami 40-3 to in the Peach Bowl, so uh, kind of embarrassed the U there a little bit. And then they went 11-2 and the following year, and in 07, they went 12-2 and and beat Ohio State in the in the national championship game. So LSU was the, the team that came out of this game with, I don't want to say more momentum, but they definitely uh, went to the next few seasons playing a lot better football. So I guess something that's interesting about Iowa, and even even though they didn't end up panning out to have great success in the next couple of years, it is it is interesting just to see that program's consistency uh, in terms of coaching staff. So the the offensive coordinator for this team was Ken O'Keefe. Uh, he was with the team from '99 to 2011, uh, and then he actually has come back from 2017 till now. Uh, and Norm Parker, the defensive coordinator, was with the team from 1999 to 2011. It's just interesting to see that these, you know, this Iowa staff who has this, you know, Stone and Kirk Ferentz as their head coach and these long offensive and defensive coordinator stints, as opposed to, you know, when we talk about this LSU team that basically had to completely rebuild after this year, right? Nick Saban leaves and Jimbo Fisher obviously goes on to Florida State at some point and Will Muschamp has gone on to bit to, to other places as well. So uh, just just interesting to see polar opposites in terms of coaching at these programs uh, moving forward after this game. That's a good point, Tristan, because I mean, finding consistency in, head co- or in coaching staffs today is really tough to do. Uh, Clemson for a while there, you know, during this really good run that they've had, has had a lot of consistency in its coaching staff, and that's something that people have always pointed out. You know, Dabo Sweeney's had, you know, his same dudes at most of the positions. And uh, finding a head coach that's been around with one team as long as Kirk Ferentz has is really tough to do. You know, he's got to be one of the longest-tenured head coaches in college football right now. Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, I mean, you look at all the top programs. Ryan Day, he's going to be in his just his second season as a head coach. Dabo's only been a head coach, you know, for a few seasons. Nick Saban came to Alabama, I want to say, around 2009 or 10-ish. So, I mean, seeing Ferentz stick around this long and uh, for the athletic department to believe in him, you know, after that, after this Capital One Bowl, you know, they had they had that rough patch right there, but they stuck with him. And, I mean, here he is today still. It's, you don't see that too often in college football. Yeah, it's interesting looking at programs uh, like Iowa, and I'm going to include uh, Northwestern in a similar vein here uh, with Pat Fitzgerald, how they have these pretty good head coaches, you would say, but they don't really put together consistent uh, success because they don't really have the talent that an Ohio State or a Clemson does. So I feel like what they do is try to put together a solid team and keep them together a couple years. Um, and they're able to do that since those coaches have been tenured for quite a while. So, so they get a got a lot of guys that are together for maybe two or three years that can develop chemistry, and then that can get them a an eight to ten win season, which is what, maybe why you see those programs going up and down the way they do. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's interesting when you look at some of these other programs that I, I guess to me I would consider Iowa maybe like a a tier two program in the big 10, you know, you have, you have programs like Stanford in the PAC 12 or, you know, Oklahoma state in, in the big 12 that maybe I would consider tier two programs that 
it's important for their fan bases to kind of understand uh, not necessarily what their ceiling is, but kind of what the expectations are for the program, right? I mean, you have your top tier blue chip teams like the Ohio States and Clemson's and Alabama's of the world where it's national championship or bust. But I think it's really important to put into perspective that Iowa fans know, hey, you know what? Hey, we're going to make a Rose Bowl probably once every 20 years. And we're okay with that. You know, the Capital One Bowl's good. If we go to a bowl game, that's a decent season. And every once in a while, we'll play up and and go to a rose bowl we'll go to a, a big bowl game or whatever and and that's what you see in some of these other programs that have that kind of success like a stanford or you know those types of programs where whereas other programs that are in that same category maybe move on from their head coaches quite frequently and don't ever reach that level of success that you would expect them to yeah and uh sticking with yeah. those guys i mean uh, <clears throat> every once in a while you get those those seasons that are pretty good and a couple of years back, Iowa had one good season where they actually won the Big Ten West, and they they certainly almost made it to the playoff if they could have uh, won the Big Ten championship game versus Michigan State, and that was in 2015. So their plan going into the season needs to be to take care of business in their their division and not have too many other plans or expectations to go above that. They just if they can do that, then they really set themselves up for success in their own own plan. And so coming out of this game. Uh, we talked quite a bit about Iowa and kind of programs like that, but then you have LSU on the other end of the spectrum, right? They end up, you know, losing Nick Saban, who won a national championship there. They hire Les Miles, who wins a national championship there, and then they fire him and and hire Ed Orgeron, who wins a national championship there. So, uh, just very interesting. LSU uh, seems to like to hire and fire uh, national championship winning coaches. <laughs> Hey, that's what happens when you expect to be a uh, championship or bust, right? You know, you get your championship, but then if you're not, if you're going like two straight seasons with eight wins, you know, at a program like LSU or Ohio State or Clemson or wherever, uh, that's not the expectation. Eight win seasons isn't going to cut it. So if you're not at least in the playoff or in contention every year, that's going to be an issue. Hasn't quite worked for Nebraska, has it? <laughs> no, it hasn't. Not Michigan either, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, these tier two Big Ten teams and Michigan's, you know, kind of like, why aren't we winning national championships all the time? It's because, you know, they never do that. You know, they're more of they're more of like an Iowa, I feel like. Yeah, so it's interesting, uh, you know, looking forward. Nick Saban learned his lesson, right? He went to the NFL, didn't have the success, comes back to Alabama and just tears it up, creates a dynasty. So, you know, good for Nick Saban for just just realizing what he is. He's a great college football head coach. <laughs> just sticking with he, it. He had a little bit of success at Alabama. Moderate success. Yeah. Hey, funny story about Nick Saban getting in Alabama. You guys remember that uh, Rich Rodriguez was initially the chosen uh, person to take over Alabama football, but then he ended up backing out. And then they had to settle for Nick Saban. So rewinding back to that moment, what if Rich Rod takes over Alabama? Where's Nick Saban end up? Does he end up taking that Michigan job? Does he stay in the NFL? What happens? I was just going to say, does that mean that Nick Saban would be the head coach at Michigan? As an Ohio State fan, (laughs) thank God the stars lined up on that one. Yeah, that's a little scary to think about in comparison. Yeah, and as a Florida Gator fan, I would rather have Nick Saban not be in the SEC, but oh well. Well, that just about does it, right? Uh, Iowa knocks off LSU. Uh, We kind of talked about before the game and after. Uh, And an exciting game, you know, just just kind of one of these obscure, fun bowl games that we all love to enjoy. Going forward in this podcast, I think we're going to start to look at some other games and see what what comes of them and talk about some of these other greatest games of all time. But uh, just want to say thanks for joining us, and hopefully you guys enjoyed the podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Hey guys, make sure you remember to go over to Twitter and Instagram 
We are the Mike Linebacker on both platforms. Feel free to submit any questions to themikelinebacker at gmail.com. Currently, our episodes are only posted on SoundCloud, but we are hoping to expand to other platforms soon. Down at 16, looking Tate wants to go deep for the touchdown. A man open at the 20, it is caught, 10, 5! 